What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association podcast, a product of the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association. To get the most up-to-date info, visit our website at or.nhsbca.org. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. I'm Eddie Townsend, OBCA board member and assistant coach at Newport High School. Today, I'm joined by David Garvin, also known as Dave Garvin, retired boys basketball coach from Philomath High School. Coach, how's it going? Uh, it's going great, Eddie. Just living the dream here. Yeah. So uh, I know that you know you're. Give us a little rundown. So that you normally, you know, I ask coaches of the, their history, of their journey, of how they got you know, to where they are currently. Well, you're retired. So I kind of wanted to go back and just take us back to, you know, maybe your playing days and how you initially got the itch to start coaching. Um, who inspired you into this? How did that process go? Yeah, well, I played in high school um, and then went off to college uh, at Luther College. It's a little Division three school up in Northeast Iowa. My junior year in high school, I blew my knee out. Um, I ended up taking out all the cartilage in my knee and things like that. So I probably came back way too soon to play my junior year, which hindered my senior year. And uh, actually, my sophomore year in college, I couldn't even play. My knee had gotten sore enough again. And that's kind of where I, you know, you stepped away from not being able to play, and there was just a huge void there. So the following year, I went and talked to the coaches and said, you know, the doctors really still don't want me playing and everything. So I became a one of two people who were coaching the freshman team. And you got to sit in with the varsity coaches. Uh, Kent Fernander was the head varsity coach, and he was a great guy. Um, and he just kind of took you under your wing and did this and did that and showed you the ins and outs of why they did things, not only how to do it, but why they did it, things like that. Then I got to go back and play my senior year. Um, and at, <clears throat> at Luther, we had a, it's a 414 schedule. So during the month of January, you only had one class. Well, my sophomore year, I went home and kind of got involved in coaching with the uh, high school team I had played with. So that's kind of where the, the bug kind of grew from. And I went to college really not knowing what I wanted to do other than go to college. And so I got into education and coaching and first aid and all these type of things. And out of school, I, I got a job. My first first coaching job was 1976, a small town in Iowa called Urbana. And they didn't tell me this until after my first season, but they were thinking about dropping the sport. The three previous years, they won two games, one game, and no games the year before I came. Now, we only managed to go 2-12, and 12, but the 14-game schedule gives you an idea they were cutting back on it. But in a matter of like 10 points, we could have been 500. We lost overtime, double overtime, and triple overtime games. The next year, we were 9-10. and 10. The following year, we were 17-5. and five. Um, <clears throat> So it, you know, it, got, it gets into your blood once you start working with the kids and everything, and it just gets ingrained. I moved from Urbana to a town called Nashua, Iowa, which you may have heard of because of the Little Brown Church in Nashua. Um, there, I was there six years. They had not won a league title since 1954. And my first year, we again we struggled. Uh, they had been they'd been about 
three games below 500 the year, year before I came with a senior-laden team. My best player was a senior when I got there, and he broke his navicular bone the last practice before Christmas was out for the year. And Jay was such a good player that we'd already played three league games. Halfway through league in points, rebounds, and assists, he still led the league. Um, so we lost a huge void with him. We struggled that year mightily, ended up 5-15. and 15. Uh, But then in 1984, we won league. And then in 1985, we won league, won district, won sub-state, and actually were state champions back there. And then we moved out to Salomas. Um, I actually had contemplating getting out of coaching at that time. In Iowa, your contract is one contract. You're, you're hired to teach, and then it says they can assign you to other duties. And I, I remember standing in front of the parents at the end of the season talking to the basketball parents, and I said, you know, I've, for nine years I've been raising everyone else's kids. I have two little ones, one and three years old, and I think I probably should spend some more time raising them. But we'd always vacationed in the mountains, so we started looking for jobs. Really, we were looking western Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, um, and then the job in Slomith came, so it was a nationwide job search, so we sent that out, and we'd already come to the decision, if we moved, you're still going to have to stay coaching, because every job in PE and social studies involved coaching of some type. So we went out to, out to Oregon and went through the interview, and they said, well, you know, we will we'll get back to you, and when we'll be home, well, it'll take us four or five days to get home. So we got home, and they called and said, uh, we're afraid that someone else will hire you, so we want to offer you a job. You want to move to Oregon? And I distinctly remember standing in the kitchen, turning and looking to my wife, Terry, and say, do you want to move to Oregon? She said, sure. So away <laughs> we went. Put her on you know, the spot. Yeah, well, we're, you know, you're, well, I think I was 32 years old, so I, I wasn't quite 32. So she was 30, and I was 31. It's kind of like, you don't think about all the stuff that goes into that. that let's go off on a new adventure. So away we went to Oregon and, you know, rolled into Philomath there. And uh, I guess I was just naive enough or maybe to be blunt, dumb enough not to know what I'd really gotten into because they, uh, they had been really down the year before. I think they'd won one game the year before I got there. And I remember the sports editor for the Gazette Times called me and, asking me if I thought Trisha Stevens could play for my team, and I had no idea who Trisha Stevens was at that time. Um, I said, well, I'm not sure girls could, you know, the way we want to play will be able to keep up with us and things like that. And, well, you know, she's really good and everything, and she was. I mean, she opened your eyes to how girls can actually play the game. But we got there, and we struggled the first year. Um, so that first year was the 1986-87 season? 85-86. Okay, got you. Yeah, yeah. And we we struggled through. In fact, we lost our first 10 games. But you could see improvement. We were just getting a little bit better and a little bit better as we went through. And the first game we actually won was at Taft. And we won it. At, it was either overtime or double overtime. Um, but then we won five of the last 10 games that year, which 
if you're going to struggle, struggle early and, you know, get that momentum rolling for the next year. Right. And, you know, we were, we were blessed when I got to Salonis. We had great parental support. I mean, I had the Malcolms, the Lamberties. <clears throat> uh, there's a whole group of them that anything you wanted, they were there to help you do. You know, it's hard to get parents to videotape and things like that, which is crucial if you want to have kids see what they need to improve, what they've done poorly, what they've done well. And they videotaped every game as long as their kids were in school. Um, it was the Yakets were in that group. There, There's a whole group of them right there that, you know, they wanted to win badly and their kids wanted to win badly. And they did everything you asked them to do. And, I mean, it was so different going to Oregon. And in Iowa, when the season was over, you were done. You could hold open gyms, but that was it. If you went to camps and you worked like, there are a lot of small colleges in Iowa, and I would work a lot of their the small college camps. And if kids came by that were in your program, there couldn't be more two of them in a group that you could coach. So if three key, like if I was working with point guards and three point guards came over, I either had to leave the group or one of the point guards had to go to a different group and go through. Mm. Uh, there was no summer league ball or anything like that. So when I got to Oregon, it was just so much different and. No one tells you those rules. You find them out for yourself. And I remember sitting at the end of the year coaches meeting and all the other coaches are talking about getting their summer games lined up in this and that. And I'm kind of, what are you guys talking about? I have no idea what's going on. So that first year we scrambled and we didn't have any money to pay officials or anything, but we got games in. And then after that, we, we took off and went big time with it. We, um, I think it was my second year there. We we brought a group of kids. We brought our varsity kids, our top ten kids, back to Iowa. Played in team camps. I think we played seventy five games that summer. Um, and we just we just kept rolling with it and going on. Then so there's a huge difference from one state to the other state on what you can and can't do in, in the off seasons. Um, and it's it's uh you know it was it was a blessing and a curse at the same time. Right. Because I got so wrapped up with doing summer stuff that we quit going on family vacations and things like that between summer league and team camps and then working camps all the time. You got done with school and it seemed like you started school right away again. So, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> coaches that really influenced me. When we were in Iowa, the Hawkeyes had a tournament every year called the Amana Hawkeye Classic. It was a four-team tournament. And they had a coaching clinic that went with it. So if you went to the clinic, you got to go to the two games on Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, where it was all clinic. And then Saturday night, you got to go back to the next two games. And I went to those religiously all the time through. And, they, you know, Iowa had good coaches, but they brought in good people too. And you just learned so much going to those clinics all the time. But uh, the, the Iowa Coaching staff was a big influence in my coaching. Um, Ken, Coach Fenanger was, but, you know, it even goes back farther than that. My sophomore coach in high school, some of the things that he had us doing, uh, we did the final day I coached. And I talked with Doug Miles last summer. He sent me a little thing, and they were running our free throw fast. We had the sideline fast break that the Boston Celtics used to run a long time ago. And he has his girls running that, too, so. There was, a, there was a lot of things that went back into 
where did your philosophy come from? How did you learn this and learn those type of things? But clinics were huge for me. Um, they were just any chance I got. And, and it was unique, too. At that time period, schools paid for you to go. I mean, we would get a day off of school to travel, go to clinics Friday night, Saturday, Sunday morning, come home Sunday afternoon or evening, things like that. So there, there was a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of great coaches that I, that I listened to. And every clinic I went to, I felt if I could bring back one thing, that I could implement into my program, then it was well worth it. And there's a lot of times there's more than one thing, but right. that was your goal to be able to pick up one thing every clinic then. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, so we're we're going through – so take me through your first – I mean, let's just start at, you know, when you're in Iowa. Your first few years as coach, you'd, you'd kind of done some assistant stuff. Now you're a head coach. Um, what were your feelings? What was your level of preparation? What is your main memories of growth and breakthrough um, in, the, in that timeline? Well, you know, I, I was really lucky. The school I was at was probably maybe two-hour drive from my college. And my college coach, Coach Penanger, was available, and I could call him or I could go see him, you know, pick up things like that from him at any time. And my first year, I was really on my own. My assistant coach was just a teacher that was at school there, and they assigned him to be my assistant coach, and he really didn't have any background knowledge at all. So I was, I was going – I had my college playbook, and I had the stuff we did in high school, and I tried to take that and, and look at the players we had and, okay, what will work here, what won't work there as we went through. And that first year, I remember just, it was kind of like going in the dark. You just experimented, did this and did that and went through. But the good thing was you were willing to try anything. I remember we played the league champion from the year before, and they had four of their five starters back. So we spread the court, and we shot nothing but layups. Now, we ended up losing the game something like 28 to 20, uh, but we missed like a dozen layups in the game, too. So it just like I don't know if I'd have the nerve to do that in the 1990s when I was coaching, but that first year is kind of like, why not? You know, let's let's see what happens and go go with there with it. Part of it probably came from we didn't have as much base of the knowledge to well, if we tweak our offense here or do there with it, then my second year I thought we'd be better when we started off than we were, and I remember driving back up to up to Luther College and sitting down talking with coaches up there about what we were doing and what I was seeing and what we were doing wrong and things like that. So I had a, a great sounding board with my college coaches then. Uh, Earl Mullins was the assistant. Kent Fomonger was the head coach. Um, and those, I also had a – there was a, a guy in town. Urbana is a town of less than 500 people. You know, we had, we had a high school where there was 20 to 25 kids per grade level. It was really small. But there was another guy in town who'd played all through high school, and he was in dental school at University of Iowa. And Dan and I would sit down and talk a lot of basketball. So he just had someone to bounce ideas off of in that. And he wasn't on staff or anything, but he'd sit behind us at games. And, you know, at halftime, we'd walk down the hallway together, bouncing ideas off each other, like you do with assistant coaches, like I did with my assistant coaches once I got people that, I knew, knew some basketball and that and could, you know, 
help you out with ideas and yeah, I think that's a good idea. I don't know if I'd try that type of thing. So that was kind of the first three years going through there. And then when I moved on to Nashua, um, there were two two teachers on staff who one is a basketball football official. He he became a very big name in officiating in, in Iowa back there. And he was a math teacher. And I could sit and talk with Carrie about all types of stuff basketball wise too. And he had played and, you know, officiating that. He, he gave you a whole different viewpoint from the official standpoint when you talk about things. And then Stan Berkeley was another guy who, he actually another math teacher. I've never thought about that before. Two math teachers. Um, but he was, he had a good basketball background too. And then my assistant coach was the football coach and he had a good basketball background. So, I had good people around me that were right there in the building you'd go talk to. And, you know, you'd, you'd have your prep period and you'd be worried about something basketball-wise. And you could go down and spend 15, 20 minutes talking with them. Or if they had their prep period at the same time, you'd talk the whole time with them then. So that, that's kind of where the, I guess, the guidance came through when we were in Iowa. That, and again, like I said, I picked up a ton of stuff at clinics and that. Right. And so then when you move over to Philomath, I mean, now it's a totally different beast. You guys, you know, like you said, you, you started what you would say is slow, but you picked up pretty fast. I mean, I'm looking right now, um, and I just want people to realize, you know, I like to do this. I like to just go back into the to the records. I mean, you are one of the top – I mean, you're the – for those that don't know, Dave, you know, he was at Philomath for 17 years. He won 263 games with a 64 – percent winning percentage and he won the 2002 state championship for class 3a and he's a 2003 national coach of the year um which is i mean that's huge and i i mean i was i had the pleasure i, I played for you for um in a, like a summer i don't know some summer team that we had over at the eddie Payne basketball academy and then you know i got to play against you because i was at newport and your teams i mean we somehow got you one time i think that you it was our team of five plus the three officials got your team but <laughs> but uh we somehow got you one year but i mean you guys were so tough you know i i knew that every time i we were gonna have you know a battle but you're at philomas and you know you have a couple down years and it sounds like this is kind of the trend everywhere you went then you got it rolling i mean i'm looking here and it's uh you know what am i i'm looking at um the 1987, you, you guys went 15 and 10, and you're right there. I mean, you're in the playoffs. You beat Lakeview. Was that your first uh, win that you had in the playoffs at Philomath, the 65-51 win over Lakeview? I don't know if you remember that, but it was back in 1987. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. They had a they had a big post player. I, Benarins or something like that was his name, and we told the Blake Ecker was playing for me then. Blake was the leader of that team. And we told Blake, you got him, shut him down. And Blake did. You know, and we had a bunch of young kids playing that time with Blake. Uh, and then older kids coming off the bench. And yeah, that was, that was the first win. I think. I think. We well, then I see that you went on, you played LaSalle, you lost to them. And then you lost to, in the fourth place, uh, bracket there. You lost to Junction City by two in the 1987 yeah. playoffs. Yeah, the LaSalle game, 
we were outmanned. I mean, that's when LaSalle was the cream of the crop, and they they, they just outmanned us. And <clears throat> we played – we didn't play great, but we played okay. It's just they were so much better than we were at that time. And then the Junction City game, that came right down to they banked in a shot straight on from about 17 feet to win the game. Oh, man. Uh, we, we, we'd set up a play at the other end for Jeff Grass, and Jeff got called to traveling, and they went down and they banked that in. Or we, you know, you never know what happens in overtime. Well, we could have got blown out in overtime, but it was it was a nip and tuck game all the way through. And that was that was the first time Flomet had been to the state tournament. I think it was like seventy, mid seventies. Right. So it had been been ten or twelve years since they'd been to the been to the tournament then. So. Well, then from there, from there, you just start rolling. I mean, 88, you roll into the state tournament. You take, you go, get all the way to the state championship and you play central, lose by six. And I mean, when I'm looking at these games, you're, you beat Seaside by six and you beat LaSalle by one in the quarters. Then in the semis, um, you beat Sweet Home by 11 and then. I mean, a six-point game in the championship, 23-3. and three. I mean, that's an amazing season. For what? That's your third season at Philomath? Uh, yeah. That's incredible. I, that, I mean, you're uh, right in it. To be honest, yeah, to be honest with that year, I'm not, you know, looking back, I'm not sure how we did it. Uh, we're, we're playing all juniors and underclassmen. Um, we, we had, I think we had two seniors on the team that spot played coming off the bench, but we started all juniors and we had a couple of sophomores coming off the bench early and things like that. It, it just gets back to the kids, you know, that those guys believed they could win. And so they went out one game that you're kind of like, I'm not sure how we did that. Right. We managed to put games off and things like that, you know, and the psychology of basketball, sports in general, if you believe you can do something, you got a big leg up, I and totally those kids—they just—they just believed that they could do a lot of things, and they—they they were hungry to win. Um, <clears throat> you know, we—we we were doing things that we did the first year. It's just they knew better how to do it, and you know, when when we teach something, you're teaching how to do it and why to do it. You don't learn it overnight, and it, it just takes a little while to get going, and. And those kids were great kids. And that was the Grass and Malcolm and Lambert and Yockett, Jason Smith, uh, Mike Dugan, Chris Reed, those guys. There's there's a lot of kids there. Those are those parents that were gung-ho behind everything, too. So, um, so it's, you know, it takes – it's not just the coaching staff. Um, right. you got to have the players that are willing to do it, spend the extra time. you got to have the parents behind you. You got to have the administrator behind us, and you know that Gary Cox was our AD, and Gary was a great AD. You you followed the towed the line and followed everything in black and white that needed to be there, but he gave you all the support you could possibly ask for. So it, everything was just light right there at that time period. And I think the year before in '87, Blake was a huge part in showing those kids what it takes. You know, he, he'd played on that team that won one game, and then all of a sudden his senior year we get to go to state and win a game. And it was an upset when we won. I think I think late point was, I don't know, I want to say you're like fifth, sixth, seventh in the state or something like that. And here we come in, you know, who's flown if nobody knows who they are. Yeah, they were 22 and – I think they were 22 and 2 when you played them, or 22 yeah, and 1. Well, 
a lot of things got to fall together just right, and you know they did that. And I, I, I still, I, I would say a lot of it goes back to the kids wanting to do it, willing to do it, and the parents being 100% behind you too. So then, um, you know, you talked a little, and I'm going to roll through a couple of these because I like to just go through the history of it. Um, so 1989. So this is like your, I guess your fourth year, fifth year. I mean, this is where I'm looking at the Philomath train here. You're going, you're blowing people out at the state tournament. You're beating Philomath, uh, you're, you're beating Tillamook by 25. You beat Coquille 111 to 74. I mean, that's incredible in the quarterfinals. And then in the semis, you know, you beat LaSalle by five, a little payback there. But then again, you run up against Central and, uh, you lose in the championship by eight. I mean, 25. 25 and two mark. So you're 25 and one rolling into the state tournament. I mean, that's got to be, um, you know, two years in a row going against the same central team. That, and was that always your rival central? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, my first year we didn't have any rivals cause everybody beat us, but you know, we central and Sloma was a huge rival eighties, nineties, even in 2002 when we played in the state camp, that's what we played in, 2002 in the state championship too. You know, I never thought about that. That had to have been sweet for you. Yeah, I'm not sure what I'd done if we'd lost again. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, in in 89, um, we had everybody back and they were a good crew. And a lot of times everybody back and they're thinking, oh, we're good and we're not going to have to do this. Those kids came in and worked harder. You know, they won the, won the state football championship in the fall of 88. And they, uh, that was on Saturday and we, we played our first game on Tuesday and those guys wow. didn't miss a beat. They, they came in on Tuesday. We, we had a practice Sunday evening. They came in Monday and then Monday and then they came in on Tuesday and it looked like we'd been practicing for two weeks. They, they just, they went home after football games and they shot and they did things like that. So, you know, they, they were a great group to work with and, I never forget that Coquille game because the the captains came over after the pregame meeting with the officials and the officials said, you know, you're at the state tournament. We want to let you guys play. The first quarter took over a half hour. There were so many fouls called. Yeah. And it was kind of, I don't, I don't know what letting them play means then. And then in that, <clears throat> in that semifinal game against LaSalle, uh, we pressed. We ran a, a diamond press, and we always had our big post on the ball out of bounds. And Chris Malcolm sprained his ankle in that LaSalle game. So we managed to win that game. I don't think he played much in the fourth quarter. And then on the next night, you know, it was Friday night, Saturday night turnaround, he was he was gimped up pretty good. His mom was a nurse, and she took as good as care of him as she could, and we had him all taped up. But he couldn't get up and down the floor and he couldn't get from on the ball to set a trap. So we had to pull the press off. So, you know, they beat us. You got to be able to overcome those type of things, but we had beaten them three times that year already. Uh, they beat us at their place early in the year. We beat them at our place. Then we're tied. So we go to Jefferson, a neutral site and we squeaked out a win there. And then you got to turn around and play them in the, in the league playoffs and we just hosed them that game. And then we get to the state tournament and once again we get we get snake bit and they manage to get get the win. But you know, and their hats off to them because that was the middle of their three peat. They won three in a row. 
right there yeah. in late next year they went 26 and 0 and won another one and yeah. uh so from let's see 1990 91 92 those are all kind of like rebuilding years for you yeah yeah i think in 92 we started a a bunch of younger underclassmen again that really shouldn't have been starters but they were the best players we had right Skill-wise, they were okay, but physically, they were they were a little undersized in that. But that ended up being a good crew because they all stuck with it too and got us back on the right track again. Yeah, because you go into the '93 season, it looks like you go, you beat Myrtle Point in the playoffs, and you, uh, I mean, you get you took fourth, you beat Astoria in the fourth place game in the season '18 and seven. I mean, that's that's a great start to, you know, building what I'd consider is a blue blood and. In this division, this classification's, you know, basketball hierarchy. Yeah, and I mean, again, I want to go back to, you know, you got to have the players that are willing to do it, and and we did. Um, they <clears throat> they set good examples, and you know, once you've got little kids right now, you know how to look up the high school kids. Yeah. And once you're, you know, you're winning games and you're playing the state tournament year in and year out, and they're getting out of elementary school to go watch you play. Well, that just feeds the fire. They want they want to be like this kid or that kid, and they want to play in the state tournament. And you know, it, it just helps your program so much to get that exposure. Definitely, yeah. I'm, I mean, I totally agree with that. So when when you're talking about, you know, what are some you 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 touched on the psychological piece to it? You know, almost convincing your kids to. Well, first, it's like a it's like a sale in a way. Like, hey, if you do these things, you can be this. And then it becomes where it's like a belief. It's a faith. They they believe that, and then they and then they know it, like because they're doing it right. And then it just a, yeah. almost becomes the standard. So right. as you're doing that, as you're going from like almost being you know an evangelist of success into just being the standard of success. Um, what does that take? Um, what did you do to develop that? What are some things in your program's history that you are ways that you built that mindset and you created that standard at Philomath? Well, you know, one of the things that I, that I think helped immensely was we worked extremely hard and I know every coach is going to say they work hard, but we told our kids we were going to be in the best shape of everybody we played. And we would win close games in the fourth quarter, and and we would we would run a ton. You know, back in the olden days, we had the last 20 minutes of practice, what we called pride time. And I made up a practice schedule every day, broke it down to five minute increments of what we we're doing, and at the last 20 minutes or so, we'd have pride time written out. And then we'd write down the conditioning drills we were going to be doing. And we just, we just ingrained in them that the harder you work, the better shape you're in, the easier it would be to win games as, as you got into the end. And then we also, and, and this is a psychological thing that, you know, you either believe or you don't believe. And I picked this up from Hayden Fry. You copy people, copy people's looks who do well. You know, like, you look at the Iowa football uniforms, they're based on the Pittsburgh Steelers uniforms. 
And you go back into when Hayden Fry came in the 70s, the Steelers were the team. Well, but I always noticed Iowa, that. I didn't realize that's what the reasoning was. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, Hayden Hayden got permission from Pittsburgh and went down to the, the stripe on the leg is the exact same width as the stripe on the Steelers leg and everything. He, Hayden Fry is a psychologist that coached football, and there was a lot of things I got from him, you know, listening to him talk and things like that. And that was one of them. In the mid to late 80s, Iowa had really good football. You know, Roy Marble and B.J. Armstrong, those guys were playing for him. Well, we copied their uniforms. We had uniforms just like Iowa did. We had warm-ups that looked just like Iowa did. Uh, they're the double-edged sword there because I'm a huge Iowa fan. But we didn't do it because so much as I was an Iowa fan is they were good, and they had the same colors we did, so we wanted to look like them. And you get that belief going, you know. And I've always believed that <clears throat> when you look better, you play better. Um, so we always had good good equipment, good uniforms, things along those lines. And we just kept feeding to the kids that, you know, you can do this, you can do this. And it takes a little bit of success. And this is where I go back and give Blake some credit in, in 87. He helped us get that success. And then, hey, we can do this. And, you know, we're young. We're beating these teams. Like you said, you know, Lake, <clears throat> Lakeview had won 20-some games that year, and we knocked them off. And it's kind of like you need it. You need a win like that every now and then to, to really, yeah, we can beat teams we're not supposed to beat. You just have to keep talking to them and, and get it instilled into them. And the, the other thing we did that, <clears throat> and we didn't do this with every team because the team has to be acceptable to it and that. But when I was in Iowa, our guidance counselor was big into hypnosis. And I taught psychology. And Mr. Fran would come in. He would hypnotize the class and give them post-hypnotic suggestions and things like that. And the whole class? Come in every, the whole class. Wow. Well, everybody that wanted to. Everybody right. that wanted to, yeah. And he, so we did that with the, football, with the basketball team. And we would just come in after school on game day. We had a conference room. They'd go in, and he'd hypnotize them for like 15 minutes and tell them that they're extremely relaxed and they're well-rested. And when they would come out from hypnosis, they'd be a little bit groggy, might be the way to put it, for a few minutes. But then they all say, hey, I feel really good now. I feel real rested and everything. And we didn't shoot free throws well that year. We won the state tournament in Iowa. So we always had them shoot free throws under hypnosis. And <clears throat> when we got to Oregon, we started doing the same thing with kids. The kids that wanted to, we'd come in and... We hypnotize them, just the same thing. Get them to relax and be comfortable, you know, and go around each one, give them a little suggestion on something like that, and, and go along. Whether it works or not, I don't know. But if they believe it works, then it works. That bit, that, we that, it. that thought process, it's really cracking the thought process and making kids believe in something that maybe, you know, like, hey, you can walk on water, just just but you got to step out and try it. Right. Right, and you know, and Flomath hadn't been good for a long time, really good for a long time, and so you you're you got to break the mindset of what kind of been going on in that building for quite some time, and we were able to get that through. And then we did have a couple, you know, early '90s. We had a couple of years where we had young kids, and we were rebuilding that. But then we got kids back with some experience, and then we were able to keep that thing going. So it's it's a mind game. A lot of it is you, you got to believe you can do it before you can do it. And we had to 
convince them that they could do that. Right. And so, um, you know, eventually what happens is you get another round of great athletes. And at the same time, your son's group is coming up. And I, I want to touch on that. Um, and I want to touch on this next group that you had coming. But before that, let's uh, take a quick break, um, and we'll return with more from Coach Garvin right after this on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Coaches, as you prepare for Summer League and the upcoming season, don't forget to renew your membership with the OBCA. Membership includes access to resources and mentorship from coaches across the state and the country, as well as access to Lucio technology used by NBA franchises. Membership starts at just $15. Don't delay. Renew your OBCA membership today. Well, welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Eddie Townsend here with retired boys basketball coach at Philomath High School, um, Coach Dave Garvin. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the history of yourself as coaching and starting off in Philomath. And, you know, we kind of ran up to about the mid-90s. Um, I think in that 90, what was it, you know, the uh, 96 season, you took third. And then in the 94 season, um, or no, maybe it was the 95, 93 season where you took fourth. Um, yeah, the 93 season, you took fourth. And so you're kind of you're you're in the championship game you're you're getting state trophy after state trophy you're setting a standard and then towards the latter part of the 1990s your son uh Logan Garvin and uh a group of kids that ended up becoming uh the 2002 state champions um in the class 3A they're young so they're probably what I mean I don't know what time timeline you started with them, but you also have a good high school group. I mean, I remember you had a number of good players in, in the early two, I mean, early 2000s, late nineties. So as you're coaching high school, are you also coaching your son's young group and building them? How does, how does that work out for you? Um, I did do that. And I look back on, it, I wonder how I did that, to be honest with you. I guess when you're young, you have a lot more energy, but yeah, um, we started, <clears throat> Logan started playing in second grade, and then in third grade, we we had a travel team, uh, Logan's class of third graders and the class ahead of him of fourth graders. And they went, well, we went all the way up till they were freshmen in high school on the travel team, you know, during the season, going around the state. At that time, there was a lot of Oregon prep tournaments, uh, Robbie Frank put those on. We played in a lot of those tournaments all over all over Oregon and Southern Washington and things like that. Um, with that group of kids. Uh, but then in uh, must have been about eight ninety ninety two or ninety three, I forget which one. Um, we had played some really good kids going around the state during the winter. And um, we decided to put a summer travel team together. So we had tryouts. And at that time, uh, we didn't call it Oregon Ice. But a couple of years later, we got with Cliff Wagner, and that's what we did. We became a, the Oregon Ice program. Um, and we we traveled in the summer. Logan was a year younger than most of the kids the first year. 
Um, and we went to Minneapolis and played in, in a national BCI tournament back there. And then each year we'd, we'd have a team to get together. And <clears throat> so in junior high, that group of kids would play starting in, I don't know, probably November. They'd play on their travel group November, December, January, February, into March. And then they'd play their middle school games basically in, uh, what, January, February. And then in the summer, we'd put a travel group together. And what we did was <clears throat> we'd have a tryout, and we'd get 40, 50 kids trying out. And the 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 two really good things about that summer group we put together was those kids got to go and play a lot of really good competition. And from my standpoint, I got to work with a lot of really good coaches and picked up a ton of stuff. Uh, Bruce Reed and I did this for a while, and Bruce was at CV, and he's a great coach. Don Hayes from Bend, Evan Brown from over at Madras and that. And, you know, when you're together, even though one is supposedly the head guy and one's the assistant guy, we we just did things together. And they would they would introduce me to stuff and show me how they did things, and I hope so I did the same for them. And you're always picking things up that way. So you grow as a coach, and your players grow as players too. But we traveled all over. I mean, we went to, like I said, Minneapolis. We played in Memphis, uh, played in Colorado Springs, went to New Orleans, Fort Worth. Vegas, uh, Long Beach, we, we were all over the country playing. And that group, and when they were in 1997, we had um, Aaron Miles and Michael Lee from up in Portland played with us. And Aaron, we played in a spring league at the Hoop in the JV. They were eighth graders, seventh and eighth graders. We played in the JV division at the Hoop and won that league up there in the spring. And then we went to Fort Worth in the summer, and Aaron couldn't go with us because of summer school, but we ended up winning the whole tournament becoming national champions down there. <clears throat> and a great story on that, Eddie, is, I don't know if you remember Michael Lee, but he was a fairly good-sized kid. He went to Kansas. We had him, yeah, yeah, we yeah. had him at point guard, and we're, we're playing in the quarterfinals or semifinals, I forget what it is, the team from New Mexico, and we got Michael at point. And we would flatten out. We'd go low on four. And we'd give him the ball and let him go. And so we'd call low on four. Michael's got the ball. And all of a sudden he gets called for five seconds. He didn't make a move or anything. And there was a timeout or a free throw or something. They came over and said, Michael, what's going on? He goes, Coach, I didn't know what move to use. I said, Michael, use any one of them because you're going to get a layup. And I think he scored like <laughs> ten straight points with the same move after that. It was his, those, him and Aaron were, I mean, all the kids we had were great kids, but those two guys, and then to watch them go to Kansas and then, you know, Aaron go on the NBA and it was, it was, it was a great trip. But going in, and when we traveled on those trips, we always made the kids go out and we sightsee when we were there too. It just wasn't all business, but that was great in the summer. Um, but like I said, between that and going to camps and things, the family kind of suffered so we didn't have a lot of family vacations in there. But those kind of were yeah, your family I, vacations? I mean, or did you guys just go as – how did that work um, out? Yeah, Logan and I went every time. Uh, when we went to Colorado Springs – I went to that one. How much of a, yeah, so much of a glutton for punishment. We had a girls team that came 
Oh no! The week after that, <laughs> so we we overlapped a day or two. So that was that was a family vacation there because my daughter came and played too. So that um, was. Did you only go there one year to Colorado Springs, or was that a yearly thing? Yeah, yeah. No, we just went one year. We I must have we been traveled. on the younger group. Um, yeah, most most of the time we went, we played in the BCI tournament. Right. Um, and the reason we did that <clears throat> was. <clears throat> You had to play five guys the first quarter, five guys the second quarter, and you could not play zone. And I I despise zone. And it may you know, everybody gets playing time. Now if someone got hurt, then the other coach got to pick who went in and things like that. But you know, it was I, I liked the rules that they had there. I, I didn't like the way they interpreted zone rules at time. Um, but I like that setup. So we went to a lot of those tournaments, and then we started going to tournaments in Vegas and Long Beach, which were not BCI tournaments, but they they were good tournaments too. And you can always get, you know, at that time you could get pretty cheap airfare and hotels in Vegas, so it made it made it much more affordable to take a group of kids down there. So you're, we are, you're coaching Logan's teams. You're going. You're doing all of the travel ball stuff at the same time. You're doing summer basketball for your high school team, and you're doing all of the head head stuff for Philomath High School. What does that look like? I mean, that's got to be. I mean, I'm kind of doing that right now, but I'm not the head guy at the varsity level right now. I don't know how that would work, but um, it's got to be crazy. It is. It is. Um, during the season, we would, you know, you, you play your varsity games Tuesday, Friday, practice Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. Well, we would practice when I, there was a couple of years I coached both Danny, my daughter, and Logan's teams. I had good people helping me, but they would both, we'd practice the boys against the girls. You know, practice gets done at 7.30 for the high school. Well, they'd come in and we'd go from about quarter till eight until nine, nine thirty, something like that on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then we'd play our varsity game on Friday and get up Saturday morning and take off to wherever the tournament was. And we were headed to Seaside for a tournament, play your game Saturday and then Sunday head up and come back home and start the whole week all over again. So like I said, it, it's a young man's job. I, I don't know how we did it at that time period, and I, I definitely know I couldn't do it now with the energy level it takes. Um, but it's right. just something you, you love what you're doing. And mm -hmm. I, it's like teaching. I can't say every day I walked in the door of school I liked it, but I didn't mind my job because it wasn't really a job. I enjoyed going to work. Um, I enjoyed even in years where we weren't doing well in basketball, I enjoyed being on the basketball court. And I've, I've always loved practice more than games because at practice you get to teach people. Right. You know, games are, you can't do a whole lot of teaching. You can do a little correction, but you can't do a whole lot of teaching. But in practice, and that, that's the part of the game I really love is teaching people about how to do this, why to do this, when to do this type of thing going through there. But it was, it was definitely hectic, um, especially during the season. Now in the summer, it wasn't quite like it seems because after we had tryouts, <clears throat> we'd have one or two practices on a Sunday during the spring just so the kids got to know each other. And then what we would do is we'd bring them into Slomas for a week, and they'd sleep in our garage 
And then we'd walk over to high school and we'd practice three times a day for four or five days. Parents would come pick, pick them up and the next day we'd meet them in Portland and fly out to where we were going. So the, mm. the summer deal was really <clears throat> two, maybe two and a half weeks of intense basketball with the, with the travel group we had then. And, you know, we had, <clears throat> we had some really good kids go with it. I don't know if you remember, uh, Jacoby Ellsbury from over at Madras. Oh yeah. The Yankees. Yeah. Jacoby played with us. Kevin Boss played with us. Um, John Hildebrand up in Dayton. Um, yeah. Grayson Boucher, who's now known as a professor. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those guys all played with us in the summer. So we were, we were, and then Aaron and, and Michael too, you know, we, we were blessed with some really you were good kids. Good. That's and talent that's, right it, there. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it is fun. You know, when the kids want to be there and they know they're, They'd been selected to be there. We didn't hand pick them. They had to prove it at tryout. Um, they put a little more effort into it. They, they understand. Oh, Derek Anderson played with us. Billy Swanghead played with us. We, we had some really, really good kids and not only good players, but good people. And their parents would go. So you get to meet the parents and everything. But it wasn't like our summer league was all, our summer travel was all spread out over the summer. It was, it was in July mostly. Um, but we would we'd condense it and have them come in and you know, sleep in the garage, which they got to know each other really well in the team building and those type of things. But, but it, it is definitely hectic. And if if you ask me if I could do it today again, I'd probably say no. I just I just right. don't know where all that energy came from at that time. Well, I understand where, was, where it is. I mean, I I'm right now. I'm probably in that. You know, my son is a second grader. And, uh, you know, I just, last night I was at the gym for two hours with them. And then the the high school season starts, you know, in a couple of weeks and I'm just, I'm doing, you know, all the scheduling for all the different teams, the youth teams in our town. And I'm like, okay, I got to juggle this, that, and the other, but I wouldn't really have it another way. I mean, I'm kind of concerned when my, I've got two other kids that are younger when they come into playing age, it's like, there's no way, uh, but I don't know. I don't know what else I'd do. I think you're probably in the same boat. It's not like you're just going to let, you know, Logan's group not get coached by an, an elite coach. Yeah. Well, and, and they had a great, you know, it was a, a good group, a good group of Salomith kids there too, um, which made it fun. You know, if the parents are behind you and supportive and the kids want to do it, it's not work. It's, it's just fun going out and, you know, imparting your knowledge to them and helping them along and, in our case, with those kids, you know, a lot of the kids that were on that state championship team had played on the Flomas travel team for two, three, four, five, six years. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell you, Eddie, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. When we started practice, well, in 2000, 2001, for the We've been 99, 2000, 2001. For those three years, we could have scrimmaged the first day and done very well because those kids had played in the system so long. And we ran the system we ran at high school with them. Right. But the first year is like you have one play, and that's all you run. Then the second year, you add a second play to it. You know, you just keep adding on to it and adding on to it. And by the time we got to high school, we had a playbook that was – well, probably inch, inch and a half thick. And 
we could call out a play that first day of practice, and they would have went out and run it. They, they knew what was going on. And the other thing we we stressed mightily was defense, and we spent a lot of time when they were little. I'm yeah. sure those guys had nightmares at times about running shell drill over and over and over. You know, again. it's funny because I wanted to talk to you about last night. So I'm I'm running a third and fourth grade travel team. Last night was the first night. Um, we've been working, we worked on shell. So I had four on four, you know, I'm just walking them through it very slowly and making them repeat what they're supposed to do. And they're just, okay, pass it here. Now where are you supposed to be? And everybody's repeating it. And it is, you know, I'm, and I'm just envisioning, I'm like, man, if we keep doing this, when these kids are like, well, really at the end of this season, they're going to be locked in. They're just going to be shutting people. Because a lot of teams, I mean, first of all, little kid teams, you know, they don't know what to do against a solid man-to-man. And uh, when you get to an older group, I mean, I can't imagine how many times I've been in a varsity practice and you're trying to reteach the shell drill. And it takes so much time so you can't get to the more, I mean, it's important, fundamental. But, you know, to get to the more deep parts of what you want to do, like the nuance of plays or offense or whatever, so I, I, I'm I mean, in that boat. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, even even with shell drill, you know, you can always expand it. And you know, by the time we got done, we were working. Okay, if you screen, what if you get screened, what how are we going to defend that? You know, we hedge, we trap, you know, we switch, and you know, all those things. You can just drill it over and over and over. And there, there's so much to the shell drill. And then individual one-on-one ball handling, we call them alleys. You know those. Those kids, when they were in third grade, started doing that stuff. You can like imagine. Like zigzag dribble? Pardon me? Your, your alley drills. Explain that one to us. Um, it's just one-on-one, and you have, you're going full court, so one person has from, say, the out-of-bounds line to the lane line, mm-hmm. and you're just zigzagging back and forth. Yeah. Um, and the guy's playing defense. You know, you got to keep his nose to the ball, do a half-step over play. Then you pick it up, and you got to jump up and yell, pressure, 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 and then you jump back and go again. And you have another guy going in the middle from lane to lane and another group going from lane to out of bounds on the other side. Just up and down the court, you go with it. So, it's a, you know, it's a one-on-one. One guy's working on his ball handling. One guy's working on playing defense. And you start off, and you're walking through, so defense gets there, and then you pick it up a little bit. And then when you play live, the defense has got to be in position when they get to the other end line, or he loses. <clears throat> I love that. And so when we talk about your system, I mean, offensively, what does that look like for you? And I know that there's been a huge revolution in the game of basketball since, you know, in the last 20 years. But I think there are tried and true things. You know, when, when teams run really good flex offense, for instance, I mean, if they're good at it, it's hard to defend regardless, especially if they have good players. When it comes yeah, to what we, you did on offense, what it what was that? What did that look like? Do you still have that those materials? Like, how did it go? Yeah, well, we we actually did probably three different stages when I was in Columbus. Um, when I was Iowa, there'd be a fourth stage because in Iowa we ran a high one four, which is what we ran in college. Then we kind of switched over. We ran some of that, but we ran a lot of flex. And then in the early uh, early to mid early mid nineties, we ran the Loyola Marymount, get up down the floor and shoot the ball. I mean our goal was a hundred shots a game. And then we kinda transgression from that where we still wanted to run, 
<clears throat> but we would have a secondary fast break when we got the other end that went right into our offense. And we got into a lot of Barry Adams triangle stuff. I mean, Barry, Barry was a huge influence on what I did and, and a great mentor for Logan too. He took Logan under his wing. He just seemed to like him. And, but Barry was great. And I sat down with him tons of times, um, going over his offense and things. And, you know, the, the triangle offense, you try to find the other team's weakness and that's what you attack. And we had we had tons of different plays out of that. I mean, there, you know, pe- people don't believe me, but <clears throat> we would be playing a game Logan's junior and senior year, and I'd call out a play, and he'd shake his head and call something else out, and it would work. Now, mine might have worked, but he just saw something different that he thought this play would work better than. And that's, you know, when you have a coach on the floor who's your point guard, it makes it pretty easy. Um, but we, we ran a ton of triangle things, little, little things that it looks like the same play, but there's just a little bit difference to it. And all of a sudden you pop somebody wide open with it. And you know, when, <clears throat> the last couple of years, we were fairly big with, you know, Kevin being six, 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 seven, six, eight, and Tommy Bain being six, six or six, seven, and Daniel Hinchberger coming off the bench at six, seven. We could do a lot of lob stuff to them. We'd back pick them and roll them to the rim. Well, you don't do that when you, you know, you're playing at 6-2 post. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different things we have in our playbook that we would, we would do depending on personnel. But I would say the last, oh, <clears throat> easily the last seven years, we just got into, into Barry Adams triangle offenses more and more and more. And we still, you might remember having to play against our two-man game where we gave the ball to the, point guard and set post up high to pick and guys down low. I picked that up from Dr. Tom Davis in Iowa and we we ran that a lot too. Um, you just, we just, we just always felt we'd, we'd take where we thought we had the biggest advantage and that's where we would attack on offense. And if you remember the state championship game in 2002, when we got to overtime, we hadn't been able to score. So we just called low one four and let Logan take the game over at the point. He scored all of our points in overtime to win the state tournament going one-on-one against Central. They couldn't come and help because you're going to throw the ball to Kevin or Tommy Bain standing two feet from the basket. Right. So we, we just, the, the triangle offense is just that way. Find the weakness or where you think the weakness is or where you have a big advantage and use these plays to take advantage of it then. Right. And so you built that team up and, you know, I mean, they went, they, I mean, what was it? Logan's, I want to say it was his sophomore year. You guys played in the state championship against Cresswell, if I'm right. Uh, Correct. And you guys lost to them. I mean, I remember that game actually, because Cresswell came to us in the first round and they just absolutely killed us. And that was, you know, Jim Howell and that group. And uh, I was a freshman then. And, uh, and then I went to the state tournament and watched. And I remember, um, you know, Cresswell, uh, why am I blanking on his name? Stellar player. Luke Cresswell Jackson. played. What's that? Yeah, Luke Jackson. So Luke Jackson, Luke, Luke Jackson. he could not yeah. make a shot. And I remember watching him at halftime shoot, and he couldn't make a shot at halftime. And I remember vividly, this is a memory that there's nobody, maybe there's some people that saw this, but I was watching him, and he looked at his hands, and he shook his head. Like, he just was like, I can't make anything. And he just looked around and he just started passing the ball to his teammates during halftime. 
And I think he ended up having 13 assists in that game. But they, you know, yeah, end up going did. to uh, win that championship. <clears throat> so then the next year, you know, that was Logan's junior year, 2001. And, uh, <clears throat> I mean, you've been building this for years. You go in, you beat Hidden Valley by 15. You go to the state tournament and uh, run us through that the year before. You, I think you took, what, fourth place in that tournament? Yeah, I, um I think it was Pleasant Hill that beat us that year in the in the tournament. And it's, it's kind of I'm getting old. It's kind of foggy. I think it, it looks was like Pleasant you lost. Hill to, you beat Madras, and then you. Well, no, that was. Yeah, you're right. You lost to Pleasant Hill, fifty-eight forty-three, and then you beat Madras. Yeah, beat they, they had Gattles. a couple of really quick quick guards, and they were what. Um, they were well coached. Um, they just they just outplayed us that game. Is really what it boiled down to. Um, I'm not sure you lined everybody up and played one on one. You know, we might not have had three three better players than they had, but they outplayed us as a group. And you got to give them credit. They they needed they did what they needed to do in order to win that ball game. Um, <clears throat> we were <clears throat> we were small at post that year. Uh, shorter, I'll put it that way. You know, Kevin Voss actually had been a perimeter player for us growing up in his first couple of years of high school. And he was just transitioning into a post player. Oh. Um, so we, we weren't, we weren't nearly as big in 2001 as we were in 2002. We got, we got a lot bigger in size as we went through. But yeah, that was, that was another good year. You know, the first year in 2000, we had Logan, Tommy Martin and Matt Simonson on the perimeter, and all of them were pretty good shooters. And I remember we played we played Junction City, I believe it was the opening round of the state tournament. It was a morning game, and there was probably three, four thousand people there. And Craig Rothenberger came out in a zone, and we just shot lights out in the first quarter, and got ahead of them and just stayed ahead of them for that game. But then, like you said, in the championship game, uh, Luke Jackson just be- became a passer, and he he was at the well, he was top of the key, maybe a little bit farther behind that, and they would feed him the ball there, and uh, Logan was defending him. But you know, you're six seven on six two, and he was making good passes, and they were cutting behind our post players and our wings and getting good looks and things like that. So, you know, our goal was to not let let Luke beat us, and well, he didn't on the score sheet but his assists were were crucial then and we we didn't shoot real well i remember in the third quarter we came down and matt simonson took a a three point and we were down one or two he took a three and it rimmed out they didn't score he came down took another one and it went in and out type of thing and then they scored and then they spread the court on us and we we couldn't get back to where we could get ahead of them after that time period but it was fun playing um not often you play against NBA caliber people in high school. Right. Well, and the crazy thing is in that game you had college players, you had a guy that goes to the NFL, NBA, you know, a lot of talent there. So then we go to the last your last year at Philomath. Um, you end up beating LeGrand big. Then you beat Marist by one. And then the semis you beat Astoria by about, oh, what is that, 15. And then, like you said, you go into overtime against Central, a league opponent, and you beat them by two in overtime to win the state championship. So take me through that, you know, um, just your your memory of that 
you know, your final state tournament and that feeling of winning the state title. I mean, all the work that you'd put in over the years and then to win it on the last game, you're going to coach your son, you know, at Gill Coliseum Saturday night had that feel. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the tournament itself, the story behind the tournament is the weekend before we went to play in the tournament, Logan got the flu. So I'm thinking, crap, here we go again. Just like 89, we get to the state tournament, we get, we're got a good chance playing a championship game and something goes wrong that we have no control over. But he lost some weight and it was against the Legrand game. It worked out well because we got ahead of him. We were able to spot play him. Jake Kettles moved to the point and we were able to spot play Logan and get him some rest in that game. The Maris game went right down to the wire because we, we could not make free throws that game. Uh, Tommy Bain made two that actually ended up winning the game for us. And then they came down. Maris was going to have the last shot, and their player cleared out. Uh, A.J. Bowman was playing defense. He's right in his grill, and they cleared him out with his offhand, and the official actually called the offensive foul. So oh, wow. it took their last shot away from them. So, you know, when you really think about it, if you go back and look, even to NCAA Final Four, how often does the best team win? Actually, maybe 10, 15, 20% of the time, it's a team that catches the breaks and gets lucky at a certain time or something like that. So in that game, we got lucky, and a lot of officials wouldn't call that. And you watch it on tape, and it's it's there. It wasn't a made-up call. He he had his, his uh, <clears throat> offhand, and he really cleared out and straightened that elbow all the way out and knocked A.J. backwards three or four steps. Uh, and then we we played Astoria, which is Mike going. They were always a good team. And then we're back to the old Nemesis Central in the championship game, and it was it was just back and forth, back and forth. Um, they had foul trouble, and we played we played seven people, which is deceiving because two of them played thirty seconds. We basically played our starters the entire time. Um, right before half, we took Logan and Kevin out and put Daniel Hinchberger and Brandon Tardiff in for defensive purposes, and Brandon right away forces the turnover. So back Logan and Kevin went in to get the last shot of the half in that. And then we we get to overtime, um, and this is where I don't think we go to overtime if Logan hadn't had the flu the weekend before because he had a three-pointer from the corner just at the end of the game, and it's dead on. It's just a half an inch short. You know, playing playing four games after having the flu in a week like that, maybe it's an excuse. I don't know. But I think it's, if his legs had been there, that ball's right through and we don't go to overtime. But then in overtime, he was still back and forth. We couldn't get anything going. Nobody could score. So we flattened out and let Logan take the ball and top the key, play one-on-one. And they Central did have the last shot. Um, I believe it, I believe it Jake Kettles is up on, and I can't think of their point guard's name right off, up on him. And he took an, and launched a three from the right side. But if you watch the tape, the official is calling a foul underneath. Uh, Logan had boxed, I can't remember who he boxed. He boxed one of their players off and he grabbed him and pulled him around. And the official called the foul underneath there. So I don't think the shot would have counted even if it went in. But that was the end of the game. And to explain 
the feeling is, is really hard. Um, you put all that time, that effort in, and, and those kids from third grade on, you'd work with most of those kids type of thing. And going into that game, I hadn't decided for sure if I was going to retire or not. Um, but then when the game was over, it's just like all this pressure and tension lifted off your shoulders. You know, there's, there's no better way to go out than right now. You go out on top. And when I first started coaching, of course, the first team I took over was, was historically bad. And I'd made the promise to myself that I would never leave a team for a new coach coming in that was not a representable team. And the, the first school I left, when I left, we had we had two starters and the first three reserves back. After we won the state tournament in Iowa, we had the point guard, and we had all four of the first reserves were back in. And when I left Salomas, you know, we lost three starters, but you still had Jake and AJ back, and you had Daniel, and you had a couple other big kids that played some in there. So there, there's always the dent, the the shelf was never bare when I left. And so I think that went into playing into my mind. You know, they're they're going to be good again next year. So hopefully. Blake can get the job if I step down. There, there won't be a huge transition because he'll do a lot of the same thing for doing now, and the kids won't suffer for it and this type of thing and on. But when that final horn went off, I I don't know if I can ever explain that feeling. You know, we won two state tournaments, one in Iowa and one here, and, and the one in Iowa felt really, really good because we weren't expected to. We were the eighth seed out of 18. We weren't expected to do anything. Oregon was different because we were the number one team in the state all year long. We were expected to win. Well, maybe it's just the fact that all that pressure was off. But it didn't take long before people started. I mean, the horn went off. I was looking for Logan to grab and other guys to grab. And that before long, people were grabbing it from the stands and everything. And it is extremely emotional. I can tell you that right there. It's, there's no way to describe exactly how it feels. It is extremely emotional and, and just – you know, the day you got married and the day you had your kids, probably beat it, but not by a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's that sums it up well. I, I mean, I didn't have <clears throat> that buildup, obviously, and I wasn't coaching my son. But, yeah, I totally understand that it, it is a weird feeling of – because you put a lot of your soul and your heart into it. And, uh, I mean, I think it would be difficult to do that – for years, I mean, I, I, I don't think that, you know, uh, people that don't get the opportunity to coach good talent and, you know, or maybe they have great talent, they just don't have the breaks go their way when, when they do or they're going up against this other school that just has better talent or they get a little bit more breaks and they just never get an opportunity to win one. That would be very difficult, you know, if, you, if you'd put all that. But there's no, they're no less than, you know, somebody that catches the breaks. But it's just right. it's really nice when you are one of those guys that gets the opportunity to to cut the net down. Yeah, and you, you know you don't do it without tons of support. I mean, it's, I'm not sure how much coaching actually plays into it, other than getting the kids to believe in what you're doing will win for them and make them better. But you got to have the kids. You know, they got to put the extra time in. You got to have the parental support, and the parental support is huge. I mean, think of the time, as a parent, think of the time you're giving up now for your son and even second grade, and you got 10 more years. So think how that's going to multiply as you go through. 
And then, you know, you have to have an administration. I, I worked for great ADs all, all through, both in Iowa and in Oregon. The ADs we had were fantastic and supportive and, you know, made things easier for you if they possibly could. You, you, it's all got to come together for you then. It just, just doesn't happen. And the, the, the thing that always sticks in my mind was the year we won in Iowa, my college coach sent me a handwritten note. He, he was a big statistics guy, and he'd done a study, and 2% of high school coaches win state championships, high school basketball coaches win state championships. And when you think about that, that's 90%, 98% of the other people, I don't want to call them failures, but don't reach the goal. I mean, you go in the season, pretty much every team has that goal. I know every year we were at Flomath, our goal was to be playing on the last day of the state tournament. Even in years when we knew we probably weren't going to be very good, that was still our goal. Now, in 80, 89 and 2002, our goal changed a little bit. It was to be playing the last game of the last day of the state tournament. Um, but, you know, that was another thing. We, we always set goals like that. I know a lot of teams, their goal is to get to the state tournament. Well, then you have to reset your goal. I'm not sure you can do that at that time. We, we just set the goals. This is where we're going to get, and it's for the entire year type of deal. That's that's a. I remember you putting uh, posting that as a comment on one of my posts after we won it at Toledo, and I I was always blown away by that statistic. Um, well, so coach, I wanted to go through a couple of things for just people that want to hear about how you architect uh, a year as a, and we've, we've touched base on, on some of it, but I just want to put your mind as just a high school basketball coach as you're, um, you know, you're on a, you're in the program that you've built. Let's say you're, you know, in one of those years at Philomath and let's just say the, the season just ended. So it's like, you know, the first week of March, April, May timeline. Let's just start there. We're going to go all the way around in the whole year, if if you can put yourself in that mindset. So, what did you do as a coach, um, and what was your level of work with the basketball team? And that that I'll call it, you know, um, that first stage, stage one, which is you know April May into the June's not quite summer league season, but the the timeline of like baseball season, we'll say. Um, what what level of work? What did you do in that time? Did you just take a break, or was there something that you're still doing? Well, the first thing we did is I would sit down with players, and uh, my sophomore high school coach did this, and I still have it. He typed up a three-by-five note card on five things I needed to improve on for the next year. And so we, we would write at, write those out and give them to the kids, or we'd sit down and talk with the kids directly right at the end of the season. You know, And we would bring the seniors in, too, that weren't coming back and just talk to them a little bit about, you know, hey, if you could change things, what would you like to change? Um, just to get inside input and then bring the underclassmen in. You know, these are things that we think if you can improve these things, you're going to have a lot better season. If you have a better season, we're going to have a better season than that. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, usually at the end of the season, we didn't do much with the players in that, you know, during baseball-type season. Uh, we encouraged them to go out for another sport. Um, baseball or, or track, if we could get them to go out. But, you know, a lot of kids didn't want to do that, um, especially after years when you went all the way to the state championship game. It's kind of like, I need a little bit of break. Um, but as far as what I would do, 
I guess I took a break from the kids to a degree, but I didn't take a break from basketball. Um, even to this day, I can't sit down and watch a college game on TV and really enjoy the game. I enjoy watching college football immensely. But when I watch college basketball, I used to always have a pad out, and I'm taking notes and drawing up plays and things like that. Well, when the high school season gets over, you're into the NCAA tournament. Hey, I'd spend one of my favorite times here. Yeah. yeah. I'd spend hours in front of the TV, and I may pick up one play in a game, and I may watch five games and not get anything, but you're always watching for stuff like that. So it, it kind of tapers down. I don't have to do any coaching, but I'm looking to improve my coaching as we went through. It also depends on the kids. When you don't have kids that are out for other sports, we'd always try to get them in the weight room. There's nothing mandatory, but it's kind of, you know, can only help you if you come in. And we wouldn't go every day. Um, you know, maybe, maybe we'd start off two days a week and just go in on Tuesday and Thursday or something like that. And then <clears throat> as we got closer to the summer and we're getting ready to start play our summer league games, we might try to pick them up to three days a week to go in there. And that, that time period in April and May is also when you're doing a lot of your organization, your, your summer program. You know, we're getting, getting your summer league games lined up. If you're going to go to a team camp and you're going to have to travel, getting all your travel arrangements, you know, where, where's the money coming from, those type of things. Uh, we always put on a camp. We had a high school camp and a younger kids camp. We get that all organized and set up and on the calendar when we're going to do that. And then you get to June, and I don't know about other programs, but June was a game month for us. Uh, we, would, we would have one practice where we'd come in and, and just kind of run through the offense again to make sure everybody was was up to date on it, and then we'd just start playing games. And um, it worked out well. Terry Stevenson was the baseball coach, and, we just shared days. Um, I don't remember if we went Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, or whatever it was in that. And he went the other days. And I remember when we had Mike Thurman, their summer league counts. They have a league championship in that. And it came down that they were supposed to play on a basketball day. day and Terry came and said, hey, can we have Mike that day? Sure. Said, well, you can have him on this day. And we just, you, you got to have cooperation with your other coaches. And I'm sure it's worse now. Because it's terrible everybody's now. doing everything in the summer. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you're you're in a constant battle, you know, for the 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 football team, the baseball team, the basketball team, and you know, you might have a meeting. I, I mean, when I was at Toledo, there wasn't much of this because there was so much influence. There's a lot of different things going on with those coaches. Like the baseball coach didn't want to do anything, and the flo- uh, the football coach, you know, it would be it honestly be a different guy every a couple of years. So it was very different. But, um, you know, at Newport, they've got a great baseball program, um, football programs in flux. And there's always this, you know, even if you come to an agreement, maybe in like, say, March, things tend to change, you know, it's like, oh, and they, they bleed over into maybe your day and then kids are having to choose and it's a tough deal. And so I don't know really what the answer is to that. But so anyways, you're talking about June. Yeah, so June we'd play games, um, usually the end of June or maybe the very first of July, we'd go off to a team camp, and we like to travel. Like I said, you know, we went back to Iowa a couple of years. Uh, we are gone 18 days. 
the first year we went back, we played at Wartburg team camp. You played four games a day. And then we went to Northern Iowa team camp. It was a weekend camp, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Played, um, I think we played two games on Friday and then three on Saturday and Sunday. We got a ton of games in. But then we came back and we vacationed through the Black Hills and Yellowstone and stuff like that. We made that trip twice. Uh, we went down to Santa Clara for, went to Bozeman, um, went to a Division three school down the L.A. area. And we liked to get out and travel so the kids could, could see the country as we went through. Did you most of the time when you did that, did you ride a, did you drive a, a, a van or did you travel via plane? We took, we took vans. We take, we'd take a van and like when we went to Iowa, we had a van and a trailer and we camped out all the way and all the way back. Um, when we went down and when we went to Bozeman, we went over through Yellowstone and then up to Bozeman for a, a team camp. And we, uh, we stayed in hotels in Yellowstone. We stayed in cabins. Um, but we always, we always drove. We tried and take eight to ten kids. Um, and then, you know, they knew each other already, but you really get to know each other. And as a coach, you really get to know them too when you're cooped up in that van for, you know, two, three days driving and things along those lines. But I, I thought it helped a lot. And then we get back from our team camp. And we really didn't do anything. Um, we encouraged them to go off to camps on their own, whether it went to Cascade or to OSU or somewhere like that. Um, some of them had other camps they liked to go to. That would take you through July, and then sometime in August, school would start again. And once school got started, and the football team, the soccer team, the cross-country team, everybody got, kind of went out for that sport, then I'd get a hold of the kids who weren't for out for sport and say, hey, you know, we need to get in the weight room. And again, we'd start a couple nights a week and then just kind of build up to where by the time we got to the season, we'd be in there four or five nights a week. And I'd get programs from different college coaches and things along those lines, what they suggested we did. And I'd go in with them. So it wasn't like you guys need to be there. I'd, I'd go right in there with them in that. And I know the, <clears throat> The last two years I coached, it changed a little bit because we had a bunch of guys that weren't out for fall sports. Um, so I said, okay, you guys, we're going to do some basketball conditioning and get you guys ready. Um, you know, Logan and Ty Gilson, A.J. Bowman were, were three of them I remember specifically that weren't doing a fall sport. And we did box jumps and jumped rope, and we had a conditioning program in that. Um, so we were – we were really working basketball from uh, second week of September until this, you know end of October, first November when the season started. Now we weren't in the gym doing things like that. It was all outside of stuff. And then you know it'd take us an hour, hour and fifteen minutes to go through the program. Then it's okay, you guys, you're on your own if you want to go shoot. Middle school has outdoor courts and stuff like that, and sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't, um, just depending on how hard how hard they worked, how tired they were, and those types of things. But, yeah, so when school started, I tried to get the guys that weren't out for a sport and try to convince them we need to get in the weight room and start doing some things for basketball. And Again, it was all voluntary. You know, you'd, you'd twist arms as much as you could, but if the kid resisted too much, you don't want to push him because you might lose him completely then. But I, I would have to say we were really blessed in Sloma because 
most of the kids that went out for a fall sport were willing to start getting ready for basketball. So then let's just go – I mean, right now we're in this, right? Two weeks before the season, you've been going through all these things, and the the juices are getting flowing, you're preparing. What does that process look like two weeks before the season? For me, I'm already starting to look at what we're going to do for practices. Um, I'm getting all of our motivational stuff ready. Um, <clears throat> when we shared the locker room with football, I would go football, get over on a Friday night, They'd clean the locker room on that weekend. I'd go over the first and the following week and start putting our motivational stuff up in the locker room. You go um, over that. I'm, pardon me? You go over that. What does that look like? Um, well, we put up a lot of motivational posters. Um, you know, back in the day, we had a lot of Jordan, Dominique, and things like that. Um, sayings that we might have. Um there was one year that we took and we, um, because we were the lawyers, we assigned everybody a spirit animal and we made like little bitty shield, maybe 10 inch shields that had their spirit animal on it. And then they would earn feathers or earn awards, different types of things for doing things in practices and games. Now we always had them way in and way out of practice. So we had a big sheet on the wall that they had to fill that out. Um, when you weighed in, what did you weigh? When you weighed out, what did you weigh? Uh, decorate the room, you know, decorate their lockers up, name tags, things along those lines. We make up name tags that we always had some type of slogan or motto for the year. We put that on their name tag with their name. We put those on the lockers for them. Just a lot of different things like that. So was that in at Palomas, was it? where you still had a shared locker room or was it just team specific for that, that sport? Um, yeah, it was just for basketball. We, we had our own, once football got done, we had our own locker room for basketball. Wrestling had a different locker room. Uh, wrestling and swimming had a different locker room that they shared. So we had, we had one for ourselves then. Um, the only bad part about it was when, you know, back then when the boys played on the road, the girls played home. Well, the girls' visiting team would share our locker room. And you always worried, you know, is everything going to be there when we get back and stuff like that? And there there were some things that we would take down because they had a little value to them or something like that. Um, you know, we might have a we might have a trophy out that they, <clears throat> they'd won the year before. And so we have to take that back in, those type of things. But yeah, we had we had our own. We were we were lucky enough to have our own locker room. Oh, I would say after about eighty six or eighty seven, it wasn't. We shared the, with the wrestlers a couple of years when I first got there, and then they went went off to their own locker room. It was it was just so chaotic. Um, you know, they'd practice from three thirty to five thirty, and if we had early practice, all of a sudden you got like fifty people in a locker room, right? And, you know, that that at that time kids still took showers and everything. It, it was just a mess in there trying to get them out. Um, oh yeah, and I, I've know. actually thought a lot about that. Where I'm at is I we share. I mean the, our locker room situation, especially during games, is absolutely atrocious. And so I I really want to. I'd love to get that kind of figured out. But that's great stuff. I remember when I came and talked to you when you were still running the Fulham with Girls program a few years ago, and you had some really cool things, you know, up on the wall that I took to Toledo, like 
you know, there's some things just that kind of went back to tradition. Um, you kind of had like all the all league players that your program had ever had, and all the all state players, and you had some different awards and like, um, I don't know, just some different things that you had created that were just so uh, smart. I really thought it was a great idea because it just get, creates this situation that the kids feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves, yeah. you know. We did a we did award boards where you'd earn certain stickers for doing certain things. And with the girls' program, we were lucky enough to be able to hang those right in the locker room. With the boys' program, we had to hang them out in the hallway. There just wasn't enough room in the locker room. Um, we had with the all league players all listed. We had all state players listed. We had the state tournament finishes all listed up there. You know, trying to trying to get the girls to understand and, and the guys the you know there's a there's a history here that you're in charge of keeping up with and, and right. trying to progress as you go through and you know it, there's a lot of people that don't under don't know who some of these players were you know they they've heard the name or something like that but you got up there you know Trisha Stevens Trisha Stevens was player of the year you know two, three years in a row, and she does this and she does that type of thing. It's kind of like, well, that, that's a motivator for a lot of kids. They want to be that good, too. So that's I love that stuff. So then you've gotten ready. You're, you're getting all of your motivational stuff. You're getting your practices locked in. And then let's say you're now you're in their preseason practice mode. What does it look like? you got two weeks until your first game. Let's say you have your full team. There's no football playing. How does that look? So the, the first thing we always did is we had a skills and conditioning test. Um, and the, we, that would be our first day of practice. The shooting thing is, is like 10 different drills you did. And it, when you know, you'd stand there and you shoot as many as you can right. They're all a minute long. You shoot as many as you can right-handed, as many as you can left-handed, as many as you can the free throw line, just different things like that. And you kept track and you scored all that. And then we had a conditioning drill. There are conditioning series of drills. I think there's like three or four things that we would do, and you would get timed on that. And then I had a – I stole this from some other coach somewhere. You had a, a chart that, you know, if you fell in this category, this time to this time you were rated at this level or this level or this level. And we would go through all that. And that would be our first day of practice. We wanted our kids to come to us in shape um, up until – well, up until I quit coaching the boys, um, we would always go and run a mile outside. That was our first thing we ever did as a team, run a mile. We had a time mile. And 545 was a time you're trying to make, unless you were 6'6 six, six or bigger, then you had to beat six minutes. And if you didn't make that, you could come back and try the next day. And if you didn't make that, then you came in before school and did some extra conditioning. We just wanted them to be in shape so we didn't have to. You know, if you're not in very good shape and you start working hard in basketball before long, you're dead. And when you're dead, you're not paying attention. Even if you're just standing in line, you're not paying attention to what's going on anymore. You're just so tired. So we always we always did that. So our, our first practice was skills test and conditioning test. And then we'd come back. And one of the things I picked up when I was in Iowa from a high school coach in Illinois was called the Dirty 30. And there's 13 drills you did as a team. You had 30 minutes to do it. And you would move on to the next drill when everybody did, everybody in your team 
did that drill correctly. So an example, we had a thing called long layups, where you would, the guy with the ball would start in the block, the receiver would be the outlet position, so, you know, free throw line extended. You had three passes to get to the other end, make the layup, no traveling, and get the ball before it hits the ground come out of the net. You had to go down and back as a team, everybody doing that correctly, and as soon as you did that, you moved to the next drill. So, you know, you might do that in one trip down and back. It might be 10 minutes of trying to do that, too. Right. Your goal was 30 minutes, and if you got everything done in 30 minutes, then you got a five-minute break in practice. And so we, we would start practice. The first week, we would do that every day. I think, we think we did that every day, every year I coached, the first week of practice. Some teams, we kept doing it every day, some one every other day, some two days, some once in a while. You know, it just varied on the team makeup and what they did drill-wise and how much teaching you had to do otherwise, too. But then we would, after that, we'd go into defense. We always started with defensive thing, and then we would get into shooting, and then the offense would be the last thing we'd kind of put in. Um, so our, our first week would be a lot of conditioning, a lot of defense, and a lot of shooting. And then, you know, in, in your shooting drills, you, you do run some of your offensive stuff. They just don't realize it. You know, like you're working on this cut and get catching the ball and shooting it. They just don't realize it. Oh, that's part of the offense. It's a shooting drill. But that would kind of be our first week of practice. And then we would scrimmage on that Saturday. And I always like to bring the officials in. I, I, when I was at Salomas, I, I made it a point to always go to the officials meeting. I wanted to, you know, the officials to know who I was, and I, I wasn't afraid to ask questions why this was or that was or something like that. Um, and then we'd have them come over and officiate the scrimmage, which worked for them because they got to run up and down the floor, and that they'd talk to us about what the new rules were, the new rule changes and that. And there would be, I don't know, maybe eight to ten officials that would come in. They'd rotate in and out, and they were practicing too. And the next week, as we got ready for game week, we would really start hitting offensive much harder, um, start to scrimmage a little more. There were years that we didn't actually didn't scrimmage until the day before our first game, um, partially because we just weren't getting, we couldn't get the defense down, we couldn't get the offense down. Just you know, we'd get way off schedule. I mean, I'd have 20 minutes for defensive drills, and we'd be there an hour because they just. You just we'd switch drills. They just couldn't get what was needed to be done. Oh yeah. But then, but then we would you know, that second week you're ramping up into your game, and you know that changed. Only having two weeks changed. I don't know. I'm going to say the late '90s. We used to have three weeks to get ready, and when I was in Iowa, we would be practicing now. Um, we started on uh, Halloween. We we always had practice on Halloween. But I they actually have a new rule in Oregon. So basically, um, after so once football starts in in August, you have six weeks where you can't talk, you can't do anything with your players at all. And then after that six week mark, you can start practicing with your whole team. Yeah, and see, so that, that, that was, was like that the was, third week of September, I guess. Yeah, so that that was just kind of coming in with the 5 and 6A when we moved from Oregon to Utah. So now it's all the way through for everybody. 
Yeah, I think it's all the way through for everybody. I know it is for 4A. Um, I know that that's going on. We haven't we've we haven't been doing it because there's a lot of kids playing football and a lot of kids playing soccer. So we just kind of do what we do. But um, I know a lot of teams are definitely you know going full out, which that's to their advantage if they can do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I I would like it just for the fact that you can get a ball in their hand and you can get them shooting. Um, too many too many kids think they can become a shooter by shooting November through March. I mean, you know, you got to do that all year round. I, I know I had to when I was coaching Logan, I had to call the OSA because we had the rule of two, and I had to ask him what he counted in that rule. Now, did your son count in the rule of two? Because if he did, I can only work with one other player. And they said, no, your your family doesn't count. So I was able to work with Logan, not with anybody else in there, but work with him and then bring two kids in and work with them with the rule of two then. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't know what the, you know, that kids need to be involved in one sport. I know people say, oh, you know, you're hypocritical because Logan only played one. He played one by choice. Um, I wasn't real keen on him playing football. Everybody in our family's had knee surgery but him. Well, Danny hasn't had knee surgery, but she tore both of her ACLs, partial tears in them. So it's kind of like a little leery. Um, my wife had three or four knee surgeries, and I blew mine out big time. We we encouraged him to run track or play baseball, but he just didn't have an interest in doing those things. But, you know, if you, if you listen to college recruiters, they look at people who played more than one sport because, you know, like like with Kevin Boss, his footwork for football was much better because he was a basketball player. Um, so we, we encourage them, you know, to go out and play other sports. And I don't think you can you – know, when, when you can practice six weeks after this, as the fall season starts, you can actually practice with your team. I don't think you're going to get kids encouraged – to go out and play other sports, or, you know, if they're if they're on the fence, well, do I want to play or do I not want to play? You know, if I wait six weeks, I can start playing basketball again, or you know, baseball be the same way. If you're on the fence between playing basketball and baseball, yeah, you know, if I wait six weeks, I can start playing baseball. I'm not sure I like that, but I don't have any idea what the what the correct thing is to do either. Yeah, I mean, for me, I just think. Um... I do. I mean, I I love football. You know, I played college football and I'm, I've coached football. But the thing is, is it does seem as though, in a way, it's kind of a dying sport. Um, you know, I think basketball people feel a lot more comfortable with it. And the kids that love basketball love basketball. They're just going to be there. They're going to be ready to go. And so it's just how do you nurture that in a way where it's like they're not burnt out once you're in December, but you're also getting them ready. So you can, you know, just be rolling. So if we go back to your timeline, so now the the season started and let's say you're early December to mid December Christmas time, you know, the 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 meat of your preseason. What does that look like for you practice wise or are you just kinda going through, we're just going day by day? Or do you have that planned out and how, how do you adjust? Have have a basic plan. It's kinda like when you're teaching, you know, you have your <clears throat> Your this is what I want to cover this quarter. This is what I cover next quarter, and so I kind of break it down in the preseason, depending on the teams you have. Well, we want to make sure we've got our defenses solidified in preseason, or we've got to make sure we get you know 
we're going to see tons of zone. We got to you have two or three different zone offenses we're going through. Um, so you, you kind of it's kind of tinkering with it. You know, by this time I'd like to have our zone offense where the ten guys who are going to play really can execute that zone offense. Um, by this time I'd like to have the ten guys going to play really playing good tough man to man defense or we're going to work on our press, that we're going to put a different press in, and that type of thing as we went through. So maybe one week the emphasis would be defense. Next week the emphasis might be our presses. Next week the emphasis might be, I mean, it might be getting down now where we've played enough games and we can see we have a real weakness in rebounding. So our emphasis will become rebounding as we go through. So you kind of have a general plan, but then day by day, Week by week, day by day, we would uh, change that quite a bit. Gotcha. Okay, and then now uh, league games are beginning. So it's early January. You're, you're getting rolling, and this is where the rubber meets the road. Is your team ready? I mean, obviously, you want to win a league title. You win a league title, you get a home game to get to the state tournament. You know, um, how are you running your team along that? Basically, by the time we get that far into the season, by the time we get that far into the season, what we're looking for is taking off of what we see in practice and taking off what we see in the game tape. What are we doing well? What are we not doing well? What do we really have to get improved? And not so much looking at, well, this next team is going to be his own team. What do we have to do? Um, in order to be better as we go through. And, you know, maybe maybe we've seen a, a definite weakness, let's say something like free throw shooting. You know, we'll have a lot more emphasis all through practice. Maybe we'll start practice with free throws. Partway through, we'll shoot them again. Partway through, we'll shoot them again. We'll run like crazy and shoot them again, just trying to get them to shoot more free throws in different different physical conditioning as we go through then. So we, we just kind of – Based it off of last game we played, <clears throat> these were things we didn't do well um, last two or three games, so we got to work on that. And we didn't we didn't really say, well, you know, we you know we're going to play this team and they do this. We got to try and stop that. We we always looked at if, and we always preached the kids if we go out and do the things we're supposed to do as well as we can do them, and they score more points than we did, we still won. On the scoreboard, they did, but we played as well as we could in doing what we were supposed to do, and that's all we can ask of you. So we we took each week or each practice is let's make an improvement, and then we took an area that we really thought we had to improve on. Okay, and then so now league is finished. We're rolling into the playoffs. Uh, maybe you have a home game. Maybe you got to travel, but you know you win one game, you're going to the state tournament. How's that looking for you? This is a time where we do want to see the team we're going to play. And, and the things we really want to look at, are they zone or man-to-man? -man? Do they press? Okay, and what type of offense do they run? You know, do they run flex? Um, do they run four-out type of thing? Just so we have a general idea so we can work our practice schedule around what they're doing. If, if they're going to be a straight zone team, We'll still work on our man-to-man -man offense a little bit, but we'll spend a lot more time working on our zone offenses. 
and we usually had two or three that we would could throw at you. So if one's not working well, we can switch gears, or you figure out a way to stop this, we can switch gears and go from there. If they're pressing, what type of press is it? You know, are they trying to force tempo, or are they trying to slow tempo down? We just wanted to have an idea of what they wanted to do so we could, again, look at ourselves and say, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to be, you know, we haven't shot the ball well against the zone, so we need to make sure we move the ball quickly so we can get better looks against the zone, those type of things. Um, so we we would prepare for that team to some degree, wanting to know what they like to do, but we're still looking at ourselves. We have to go out and do the things we can do as well as we can do them. And if we do that, we'll be okay. And so now you won the game, you're entering the state tourney, and, I mean, when you're going, the state tourney was 16 teams, and, uh, you know, you're entering that, and then you're in the midst of the tournament run. What does that look like day-to-day as you're in the tournament, as you're at the state site, all that? Yeah, you know, that, that really changed from the 80s, 90s into the early 2000s because the Early on, we played at Matt Court in Eugene. So we had some travel involved that you had to, you know, where are you going to go for meals and things like this, pregame meal, where it's going to be, and all this type of stuff you go through. But then they switched it to <clears throat> Guild Coliseum. Well, you know, we're five miles from the game. We don't have much travel. Our pregame meal is going to be at somebody's house type of thing. So it's – and now you're at – um but you're up in up at, up at high school in Portland area now. Forest Grove High School. I really hope yeah. they change that. It's it, yeah. it it's hard to look. You know, it's like, hey, we're going to Forest Grove. You know, it's really a lot better when you're like, hey, we're trying to get to Gill. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's you know nothing against high schools, but you play in high schools all year. Let's let's go to a college and play, or ideally, you know, let's let's have some big arena that. Maybe not even on a college campus or the public camp, public arena or something like that. You can go play in, but yeah. So, but we, um, when we were going to Eugene, you'd have to have pregame meal, postgame meal. Sometimes we got to stay over. Um, in '89, we had a booster paid for the hotel so the kids could stay down in Eugene the whole time. Otherwise, they'd go back and forth. Um, so it's it kind of where you're at, but we would. <clears throat> We would sometimes we would have a shooting practice depending on the game was. Uh, we might have a shooting practice in the middle of the day, just get a ball in their hands, um, shoot around some. <clears throat> we, when you start playing your games on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you don't get any practices in. Uh, you might have a walkthrough. Uh, you might just have a dry erase board where you're putting things up for them to understand and draw things out for them in that. You know, it, it, it depends a lot on when you play and, and where the games are, how we how we handle things as it went through. The one thing we always tried to stress to them, it, it you know, it comes from Hoosiers. The court's the same size, the basket's the same height, free throw line's the same distance away. You got to block off all the outside stuff. Um, just go play. It's, it's, you know, have fun on the court. You, not everybody gets to be there. You know, as it is now, you get eight teams out of, what, 30, 31 teams at the 4A level. So eight of you get to go. There's a lot of teams that would love to trade places with you um, make the most of the opportunity you have in front of you. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Yeah, that was one of my favorite times, you know, uh, playing in the 2A is that, you know, we were, the quest was to get to uh, Pendleton. And, uh, you know, when you make – I remember we were doing a uh, – and Pendleton Convention Center, I don't know if you've been there, but it's a, it's a great venue for a high school basketball tournament. It probably wouldn't work – well, I think it would work for 3A or 4A. I mean, it would be super packed probably, but – I mean, it's great. It's a great environment, you know. It could probably seat about 4,000 people. But, you know, I thought Gill sometimes, you, you know, you you fill that lower bowl and then the upper bowl, some like for the state championship would be full, you know. But for the rest of it, it felt a little big. Um, it, all, it all depends on who's playing. Right. Yeah, I mean, you, Eastern Oregon teams are going to draw Southern Oregon teams. But, like, you know, the, the teams in the Valco League, they're going to fill that place up as much as they can. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when we're talking about, uh, you know, you're in that state tournament run, and let's say you do really well, you you were in, um, I, th- I believe three state championship games, you know, in a number of semifinals. You're you're say you won that semifinal, um, and now it's the big you're in the big dance. Tomorrow is the state championship. You're in it. What does that night look like? You probably played the late game that night into the semifinals. Um, so you're going um, into that state championship. How are you preparing yourself for the state championship game and, you know, that day b- building up to that, the, the big dance, what you've been playing for, you're playing on the last night. What does that look like? One of the things we always preach to our kids was act like you've been there before. So we didn't want them getting real high and celebrating wins and, you know, making a big deal out of it and that. Um, so if we, if I think back like to 2002 when we we beat Astoria in the semifinal game in that, it wasn't they weren't happy about it and they didn't celebrate a little bit. But by the time we got out of the locker room, we were done with Astoria. You know? And and I'm not saying this in a conceited way, but you got to expect to win. And if you expect to win, what's the big celebration about? getting to the next game. Now, when you get to the championship game, there is no next game. And that's what the, the emphasis was every year at the state tournament. You know, <clears throat> expect to win the ball game, act like we've been here before, we've done this before. Yes, we're real happy. You know, you, you pat each other in the back, you, you cheer and things like that. Maybe you have a little dance or a song you do in the locker room. But by the time we leave, we're, we're looking down the road to the next game, whoever that may be. And sometimes you didn't know who it was. Sometimes you did. So after after we win the the semifinal game and we know who we're going to play, um, coaches get together because usually I had my assistant coaches doing the scouting. And going into the tournament, after you got to the eight teams, you kind of had an idea who you thought would win. And each coach would kind of scout a game. But if you could see one team's going to win, you just focus on that team. So we had a two- or three-game scouting report on those teams. And usually we try to get the same person doing the same. So, like, my my head assistant, my head assistant coach would uh, watch Team A, and then he'd watch Team A again. As long as they won, he kept watching them as we went through it. And so we could get together and we kind of go through and form our game plan then. Okay, they, they don't hardly play any zone. They don't press. So we got to be able to do this. We got to be, this is their best 
their best rebounder, this is their best score, who do we want. We're going to play man, who do we want on these people as we went through. We kind of get our game plan already. And you got to remember, we were at Gill Coliseum, so most of the kids went home with their parents that night. Um, when we were in Eugene, we had a van or a bus or something that we had to get everybody on. Um, but we'd always make sure they were, they were well hydrated and got something to eat and then go home and get a good night's sleep. The next day we'd meet at school when we were playing at Gill. We'd meet at school and kind of go over some things mid-late morning, mid-afternoon, something like that, go have a pregame meal, and then head to the ball game. The The hardest year we ever had, a was 2000. Um, we were in Gill Coliseum, and we were in the championship game, and our girls were in the championship game too. So we're in the locker room getting ready, and the girls are playing. And, you know, a small school, they're all friends, and they all want to go up and watch the game. So they were dressed early, early. Usually we went down halftime and got dressed. They they were dressed mid-first quarter. Everybody wanted to go up and stand in the hallway and watch the girls play and this and that, which, you know, as a coach, is kind of like how my daughter's playing. I really want to do that but I want to get ready for the championship game too. So where are you at? So we went up and watched for quite a while and then went down, oh, I don't know, towards the end of the third quarter or something like that. But that was that was tough because you know that the guys, they're thinking about their game, but they're also thinking about the girls' games at the same time. And coaches are doing the same thing. And then, then we go up before the game's over so we can see the very end, which normally we wait a little bit longer. But we, we kind of got out of our rhythm a little bit there. But I wouldn't change anything. You know, the girls won. The guys got to celebrate with them and everything. But that that was a tough night, having both the boys and the girls in there and trying to do what you want to do but yet for the team, but yet you want to do what the team wants to do at the same time. Right. That's a tough one. I remember that. And that's – yeah, that's really tough, and I'm sure that it was difficult to navigate it. You know, that'd be real. That'd be a tough situation. A good one, though. Yeah, I mean, really cool. So, all right, so let's just real quick before we go to go to a break. I just want to go into your coaching tree. Um, you know, I talked to Doug Miles last week. I talked to or a couple few weeks ago um, on the podcast. I talked to Blake Ecker. And, uh, you know, they brought you up to where they just randomly saw you or they talked to you and you just kind of said, hey, why don't you come coach with us and and look at them now, you know. And so that that's a part of your coaching tree, you know, state championship coaches that gleaned from you and learned from you and, and grew um, under your tutelage. What was that process like? And, um, you know, how did you develop coaches? How did you bring them into the fold? What was that like? Well, I was lucky at Philomath because when I took the job, the superintendent said, you're in charge of your program. I said, well, what does that mean? He said, you hire your coaches. And I said, okay, um, what about middle school? He said, that's your program. You hire coaches. So I got to hire the people that I wanted from seventh grade, eighth grade, seventh grade coach, eighth grade coach, freshman coach, JV coach, and then volunteers as we went through that also so um, with Doug he was actually Logan was little playing in a game over in Corvallis and Doug was there and I remembered him from playing against him in the state tournament 
And I just, you know, approached him about coming and helping out if he wanted to because he, he was a good player, a very good player. And if you know, he's got some basketball knowledge, it'll help, help me if he knows what's going on and he can tell us how they did things at Myrtle Point and things along those lines. Um, kind of the same way with Blake. Blake had played for me and he'd gone off to play in Europe and he wasn't going to get to go back to Europe that year. So he approached him about coming over and helping out. But when I hired coaches, and again, I picked this up from Hayden Fry, and it's, it's extremely hard to do now. It's hard to do when I was coaching, but it might be impossible now. Hayden only said, hire assistant coaches that want to be head coaches. So they're more, they're more, more motivated, and they'll want to do things. And I said, the bad news is you're going to lose them because they want to be a head coach somewhere. And that's kind of what I always looked to. And he never just came out and asked the kid, hey, do you want to be a head coach someday? But you'd talk to them about, you know, what coaching goals and what they'd like to do and this and that. And, you know, they, they'll tell you without actually saying, I want to be a head coach someday, that they want their own program. They they like what they're doing, and they, they want to be able to impart their knowledge um, to other people. And so that's kind of with Blake and Doug. Uh, they both won state tournaments. Uh, got another another young man played for me back in the late 80s, Dwayne Gregory. Um, he's coaching in Texas. And he's won a couple state tournaments down there at the at the bigger school level. I know Texas is a football state, but they still produce some good basketball players. Uh, I've had a lot of guys that have gone on, <clears throat> gone on. You know, Troy Muir, who's a football coach at Slomas, he started coaching with me, and Chris Sexton has started. I had a lot of guys that coached with me, and you know, they they wanted to learn but they didn't want to learn for themselves. They kind of want to learn for other people, to help other people get better as you went through. And I, I think that's a big part of it. They they want to do things. You know, it's kind of like you got to have good kids that want to get better in order to have good teams. you got to have good coaches that want to get better in order to have a good staff. And I was blessed to have tons of those guys that they wanted to get better. And I had – I just kind of let them do their thing to some degree. Um, we'd have a practice schedule, and, like, we'd sit down before practice, especially when we had late practices. You know, we'd practice at 5.30. We'd be there before 5 o'clock. Um, we'd sit down going over practices, and then with the freshman coach or freshman JV, depending how we had to split the gyms up in that, I'd hand them a practice schedule and say, now, if there are things in here that you think, you would rather work on something else or work on this longer, feel free to make those changes. Um, if they had a um, end out of bounds play or something like that, they really wanted to put in. Who'd let them put it in? With my junior high coaches, I gave them kind of a an outline. I want them to be able to play man-to-man defense. You know, here are some of the basic drills that they need to be able, be able to do. We want to be able to run a certain type of offense. Um, we have a certain press that we want them to learn. Anything above and beyond that you want to put in, go ahead and put that in. And then I'd try to get, if we practiced late, I'd try to get the middle school practices and watch what they were doing. And, you know, there are times that they were doing things, and, boy, that, that might work for us. Let's let's sit down and talk about that and see if we can incorporate that into the varsity level too. So you, you in my case, you give them some guidance and some guidelines and then kind of let them be on their own. And they would come to come to you at times and say, hey, we're struggling doing this. You got any drills that we can do on that? Well, yeah, you know, 
wouldn't hurt the varsity to work on that too. So let's put this drill in for everybody as we go through. You got to let them grow, but they to do it. And I, I guess I just wanted to do it. That's great. I really appreciate that. We're going to take another break. When we return, Coach Garvin will try to beat the shot clock here in the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Stay up to date with the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association on social media at facebook.com slash Oregon BCA or on Twitter at OR Hoop Coaches. Welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Eddie Townsend here with boys basketball coach retired at Philomath High School, Coach Dave Garvin. So, Coach, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of go over a couple of things. You know, you've had a ton of coaching experiences. You've had uh, – we've gone over a ton of them. You won state titles. You've had tons of elite players, elite athletes. You've shown success at the boys and the girls level. What are, I'd say, two or three things that you want to just impart to those coaches that are building and are growing their program from the bottom? Boy, I would say um, it's a lot tougher today than it used to be, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, you, you've got to have what you believe in, and you have to stick with that. That doesn't mean that you can't change some degree, but if if you're a man-to-man defensive coach and you see guys having success playing zone, so you switch the zone, I don't think you're being true to yourself. And if you're not being true to yourself, you're not being true to your players. And I don't think your program's going to be successful in the long run. doesn't mean you can't add some zone defenses in there. Um, or if you're a zone coach and you, you live and die by the zone and all of a sudden you see everybody run this man and, but I need to try that because they're doing it. You, you got to have your own beliefs, um, and they may change. You know, I, I'm sure from my first day of coaching in 1976 to my last day in 2002, um, some of my basic philosophies changed. I mean, I know I was still a diehard man-to-man coach, um, but there are other things that, that switched up as you went through. Um, so you get to do get your own beliefs what you really, truly, strongly believe in, stay with it, and just keep pushing through. Make improvements on but keep pushing through. Second thing I would say, you have to do everything you possibly can to keep the parents on your side, um, keep good parental support. You're not going to have any program at all if you don't have parental support. Not. I don't think you have to bow down to them. You shouldn't bow down to them. Let them know what your beliefs are. Let them know what your expectations are. Um, don't change those expectations during the season. And, and you know, in the pregame or the preseason parent meeting, if you have one, which you should, go over those things in detail and let them ask questions about why you believe that. You know, we had a thing that I picked up from Lute Olson called No Cats, no caffeine, no alcohol, no tobacco, and no sugar. Uh, we instituted that in Iowa, and that's that's pretty extreme. You know, and parents would say, well, you know, how are you going to get rid of sugar? Well, you can't get rid of all of it. But what we're saying is we don't want them eating candy and cake and all this stuff and that. We don't want the, the, the sugar spikes up and down as we go through. And you explain it to them, 
And not every parent, but most of the parents say, hey, that's probably a pretty good idea. So let them know what your expectations are. Keep them on your side. Uh, nothing gets rid of more coaches than parents, I don't believe. Hmm. And probably the, the third thing that I would suggest for those guys is immerse yourself in the game. I mean, I've been out of it for a few years now. I don't know if you still have a lot of coaching clinics, if you have opportunity to go talk to college coaches. I mean, I used to, when we were doing the ICE program, a few years we went with Cliff Legner, and I used to love him sit, to sit down and talk with Cliff about basketball. Um, Barry Adams, Mike Cashman, all those guys that worked up, Bob Douglas, all those guys that worked at Camp Cascade, you know, they're walking encyclopedias. Get with people who know the game. Um, one of the big, like I said, one of the biggest things about going on the summer ice program was the coaches I got to work with. You know, immerse yourself, find those guys, talk to those guys, sit down and, and you know, pick their brain, um, form what you want to do from what they've been doing, how they do it. There, there's nothing better out there, you know, quote unquote, old coaches, experienced coaches. Um, get with those guys, especially the young guys. Learn from them. But I would say that's probably the top three things I would say. Okay. I love that. I really do. Um, I appreciate that. One thing I wanted to just go over um, real quick is, you know, Oregon just instituted a shot clock, not this season, but next season. Um, and uh, they're going to be, you know, a lot of, things on that. I just wanted to get your take on what your thoughts are about instituting a 30 or 35 second shot clock. Yeah, that, that's a tough one because I don't have to play with it. Um, I do have experience. Um, was it the 98-99 season? We went to a Christmas tournament down in San Diego and they played with a shot clock. I think we played three games, three or four games. I forget what it was. Shot clock never came into our game plan or it never went off when we had the ball. Now, we forced some shot clock. They weren't necessarily violations, some pretty poor shots. But we never had any problem with it just because we ran our offense well enough that we could get good shots. Um, the, the, I like the idea of the shot clock in one sense because it's going to keep the game going. I don't like the idea of the shot clock in the sense that if I don't have a team as talented as yours, I got to play fast. And I'm not going to be as good as you playing fast. I, I think back to my first year of coaching, you know, we lost the game 28-20 because we spread it out. We took nothing but layups the entire game. Couldn't do that anymore. Now, that team was definitely a lot better than us, but we stayed in the game with them. Um, so you're not going to have that. I think the other thing that kind of sticks in my craw about the shot clock is why do we have to be like the colleges? You know, everything the college does kind of trickles down to the high school. And I, I go back to, I listen to Coach K speak at a clinic on zone offenses. And it, it ingrained in my brain, the first thing he said, now this works well for me. Remember, I have five All-Americans running this. You don't. Well, you know, you got these, I mean, you look at the way the game's gone now, it's everybody's out at three-point line firing it up. I go to my grandson's games, and you got these sixth and seventh graders, they never get it in the paint. They come down three-point line and, and fire it up. 
Well, that's what you see in the college game. So just because the college game does it, does the high school have to do it? I understand it'll help prepare the kids that go on to college, but what percentage is that that goes on and play in college? From Not many. The percentage of plays in high school. Um, so it's, you know, I'm torn on it. If, if I was coaching, I would definitely have a quick offense that when we got down to about 12, 15 seconds, we'd automatically go to this offense to look for a shot. Um, I, I think it would be better if you either had a 45-second shot clock or the shot clock didn't start until you got to half court. Because I see a lot of people coming out and pressing you just to make it so by the time you get the ball to half court, you got 22, 23, 24 seconds. And when you break the press, what do most high school teams do? They stop, throw it back to the top of the key, and set up your offense. They, they don't attack from the wing off of the press breaker. Um, so I, I don't know. I, you know. Not a very good answer. But then again, I don't have to worry about it anymore either. Well, I, I understand that, and I've thought a lot about it. I mean, most of the time you don't really – you know, when I – and where it was in big games, I would spread it out, you know, and I would run clock. I mean, that's just, I think it takes a lot of discipline to do that. We worked on it a lot. And, you know, if you're in a big game in the fourth quarter and you're up two or three, it's like, you're good luck getting the ball back. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so the it's just going to create a new way to close out games, really. Because during a game, I mean, especially if you're a good team, you're not really stalling for 35 seconds or running. I mean, sometimes you might run offense for 35 seconds, but a lot of times it's probably more like 20, 25. I don't know. So we'll see. It's kind of interesting. It'll definitely change change the end of game strategy. That's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, which is kind of nice because if you are down, at least you know you'll get the ball back at some point. So. Yeah. Okay, well, last thing we're going to do is with that, I'm going to give you uh, a, just a, a quick questions, um, you know, quick responses, a variety of topics. It should be one or two word answers. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. What's one thing you would do to improve the game of basketball right now? I think I would lengthen the preseason practice time. I think that'll help develop fundamentals more. You're on an island with one meal for the rest of your, of your life. What are you eating? One meal. Um, well, I'd like to say steak, but after I had to have stints put in three years ago, I, my wife would probably shoot me if I said that. <laughs> so um, let's go with turkey. All right. Uh, beach and sand or mountains and snow? No, definitely mountains. That's why I moved to Utah. Beard or clean shaven? I can't grow a beard. Clean shaven. Favorite NBA player? Uh, I'd say it has to be present. Nope. Uh, Michael Jordan. Favorite college team? Oh, Iowa Hawkeyes, definitely. Favorite college coach? Um, I don't have a present one, so I'd probably say Dr. Tom Davis. Greatest basketball memory? 
I'm going to have to say winning the state championship in 2002. That that takes it over 1985 just because it was my son playing for me in 2002. But 85 is a great memory, too. What, uh, what is something people may not know about you? Um, I'm really into dirt late model racing, dirt track racing with the late models. I grew up doing that, got away from it because of sports and basketball in college. It's too old uh, and too poor to get into it, but I sure love to go watch it. You're down three with 30 seconds to go, and you're drawing up a play for a three or to get to the hoop. 30 seconds left. Down three. Uh, we're going to the hoop. All right, you're up three, ten seconds to go. Are you fouling? It depends where the ball is. Are they bringing it in from the other end line or the sideline? If they're bringing it in from the other end line, we're playing defense. If they're bringing it in from the sideline, we're probably fouling. You have Jordan, Kobe, LeBron, and Steph on your team. You're down to eight seconds to go. Who are you drawing the play up for? Uh, Michael Jordan. LeBron or Kobe? Kobe. Kobe or Jordan? Jordan. Last question. When was the time you realized you would never be able to beat Logan in a game of one-on-one again? He was doing things in junior high that I was doing in high school, so... I mean, I had size on him, but I'm going to say somewhere in well, middle school. Um, I don't know if he's maybe eighth grade, seventh grade. He was still pretty small. I'd say eighth grade though. He was he was handling the ball and shooting better than I did when I was in high school at that age. <laughs> well, coach, hey, I I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing a deep a deep well of knowledge and a wealth of, of experience with us. And uh, I just really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate your asking me, Eddie. It's an honor to to be on your podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for our, our, our episode uh, with coach Dave Garvin on the Oregon basketball coaches podcast. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And uh, if you want to follow up with questions or want to get a hold of coach Garvin, um, I'll try to get some contact information for him in the episode description. Join us next time as we talk more hoops on the Oregon Bas- Basketball Coaches Podcast. Until then, keep grinding. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Philomath retired boys basketball coach Dave Garvin. Hey, if you uh, think you should... Maybe get on the podcast, be a part of the podcast, have some good things to say. Give me an email at eddie.townsend at lincoln.k12.or.us and I'll get back to you. Other than that, hope uh, the weekend goes great. Keep grinding.